For seven months in 1942, black smoke and orange flame from torpedoed vessels filled the ocean skies off the coast of North Carolina. Explosions rattled window panes and the nerves of coastal residents. Beaches were awash with wreckage, oil, empty lifeboats, and bodies. War Zone follows the accounts of three climactic engagements between U.S. forces and German U-boats off North Carolina's coast when the Battle of the Atlantic hung very much in the balance. This story is told from the perspective of everyday people who faced daunting challenges with perseverance, patriotism, and uncommon valor. Kevin P. Duffus is a noted North Carolina research historian, author, and documentary filmmaker. Wilmington's Encore magazine likened him to a mixture of Dirk Pitt, Ben Gates, and Indiana Jones. <laughs> but really, he's just a curious guy and a former world-traveling TV producer and journalist who found a new career as a solver of historical mysteries. His books include Shipwrecks of the Outer Banks, an illustrated guide, The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate, and War Zone, World War II off the North Carolina coast, the subject of today's program. Last October, the North Carolina Society of Historians honored War Zone with a Willie Parker Peace Award for history books and presented Kevin with the Society's Barringer Award for Excellence for outstanding work on behalf of North Carolina's history. And also last year, the North Carolina Humanities Council presented to Kevin the 2013 Harlan Joel Graydon Award for Excellence in the Public Humanities. So please join me in giving a warm Richmond welcome to Kevin Duffus, who will speak to us today about War Zone, World War II off the North Carolina coast. Thank you, thank you Paul. I also want to thank uh, Nelson Langford and Graham Dozier and the staff here at Virginia Historical Society, and also you ladies and gentlemen for this warm welcome. This is really indeed a, a tremendous honor for me uh, truly a pinnacle in my speaking career, and it means much to me to be invited here to a city so steeped in tradition, and also to be able to share this little-known chapter of America's past with like-minded citizens who truly recognize and appreciate the importance of history. In his introduction to the American Heritage New Illustrated History of the United States, John F. Kennedy wrote that there is little more important for an American citizen to know than the history and traditions of his country. Without such knowledge, he stands uncertain and defenseless before the world, knowing neither where he has come from nor where he is going. Well, my goodness, things have really changed in the last 51 years. In contrast to JFK's astute reflection, one of our most popular orators of our own time has said this about the importance of history. There's an old saying about those who forget history, I don't remember it, but it's good. <laughs> well. Things have really changed. Well, today we're not here to forget, but we're here to remember. I'm sure many of you recognize the melody of UB Blake's classic Memories of You, made popular by Benny Goodman's orchestra in the pre-war years of the 1930s. Well, this program remembers and honors the selfless sacrifices of the untold numbers of America's young military couples from World War II to the conflicts of today. Um, and especially those newlyweds who soon after their marriage are parted not knowing if they will ever see each other again. I don't think anyone really knows just how many young couples were parted forever by the Second World War, just sadly as some of today's young armed forces families may suffer the ultimate sacrifice in the coming months or years. Now today you'll hear stories of young wartime couples and how their love for each other provided a bright light in the midst of the terrible darkness of war. You'll also hear about the children of some of these wartime couples and see how some of them may have influenced the outcome of World War II and also how we remember the war today. So let's start with this young Army Air Corps lieutenant and his bride. As it happened, this couple in this 1943 wedding photo did see each other again after the war and boy, I sure am glad that they did. It was my good fortune because the, these young newlyweds were my, were my parents. Almost eight months to the day that that wedding photo was taken, 75 years ago, my 22-year-old father was in command of a C-47 troop transport dropping 82nd Airborne Paratroopers on D-Day. And because my father was one of those fortunate to survive the war, 
I'm here to share with you this program. The invasion of Normandy might not have ever happened because two and a half years earlier, and just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor, while U.S. forces were being marshaled to foreign fronts, the enemy, unchallenged, entered America's front door. Now I ask you all to join me on a journey through time from our comfortable setting here in this beautiful theater to the war zone off the North Carolina coast. At a few minutes past 2 o'clock in the morning on Monday, January 19, 1942, a thunderous roar roused residents from their beds at the Outer Banks fishing village of Avon. Furniture shook, glass and knickknacks rattled, and a low-pitched rumble reverberated through the walls. The cause of this frightening sound wasn't immediately apparent because a sky filled with stars and calm seas meant that it was not likely to be a thunder. The scene that night was repeated in dozens of Hatteras Island homes in Avon, Buxton, and up the beach at Salvo and Rodanthe. Outer bankers rushing to the frosty window panes on the east side of their houses and shouting, there's a ship on fire out there. And then almost as quickly as the bright flames seemed to appear, the fire vanished on the horizon. It seemed unreal to the observers on shore. How could such an enormous conflagration be extinguished so quickly? Well, there was only one possible answer. Meanwhile, seven miles from land and due east of Avon, 22-year-old Robert Fennell Jr. was sleeping soundly in his bunk aboard the coal-fired steam freighter City of Atlanta when he was abruptly awakened by a deafening blast. Fennell couldn't understand why an entire wall of his cabin was suddenly missing. The pounding of the engine crankshaft had stopped, but other terrifying sounds had replaced it, the screech of steel plates being violently twisted and torn asunder, the hissing of escaping steam, and a torrent of surging seawater pouring into the sides of the ship. As Fennel's mind cleared, the reality became apparent. They must have been torpedoed. Almost instantly, the ship began tilting to port at a noticeable angle, and Fennel hobbled up to the upper deck on an injured ankle to his assigned lifeboat station, and he was nearly there when suddenly he remembered something that he could not do without. It was a framed photo of his wife Mary that had been hanging on the wall of his cabin. Fennel wasn't sure it was still there, but he knew he had to go back and look for it and retrieve it. Now, that's an impulse that might be hard for us to understand. Why would someone on a sinking ship return to, uh, risk returning to an interior cabin to recover a personal item and that, rather than run like mad to escape? Well, Fennel made it back to his cabin and found the photograph, and uh, before leaving his cabin for the last time, he grabbed a heavy sheepskin coat, intending to stay warm while awaiting rescue. He had no reason to believe that he and his shipmates would not be rescued within the hour. Back at his lifeboat, the, the city of Atlanta suddenly rolled over, dragging him underwater. Now, Fennel knew he was about to drown, but somehow he managed to untangle himself from the plunging wreckage, buoyed perhaps by that photo of his guardian angel, Mary. He surfaced, gasping for air, and frantically thrashed his way away from the sinking ship, which, was, uh, uh, which threatened to drag uh, everything to the bottom in its vortex. By now, the sea surrounding the stricken vessel was filled with wreckage and the frightened, bewildered sailors from the city of Atlanta. As it happened, not a single lifeboat was launched. Next, from beyond the veil of darkness, a U-boat crept up from behind the, behind the stern of the ship within view of its desperate victims, eyeing its prey while performing a victory lap. Someone shook their fist at that German U-boat and shouted at them defiantly, and then other victims, perhaps more desperate, pleaded for help, calling out to the Germans hiding behind the unsympathetic glare of the searchlight. There was no answer. But the Germans were no longer their adversary. Time was now their enemy, because for those who had so far clung to life by escaping the ship, they now faced the prospect of slowly freezing to death. Before long, many men were seen bobbing on the surface, face down, forming a macabre flotilla of the living and the dead their life preservers unable to save them from death by hypothermia. All but three of the 47 men from the city of Atlanta perished that night. In a later interview at a New Jersey hospital, one of the survivors told these reporters, I never saw so many of my friends die. They tried to cling to bits of wreckage and then they would slip off one by one. Their lifeboats held their bodies up and the dead bobbed along after the living. Now among those three men who survived was Robert Fennell Jr. And at the National Archives in Washington, I discovered a newsreel of him holding the photograph of his guardian angel. 
And a month later, Mary gave birth to a son, and the Fennels began a family in Savannah, Georgia. And many years later, that son became one of the nation's leading pediatric nephrologists. Now, the preceding account is just one of many stories in my book that describe the tumultuous first six months of 1942, when more than 65 different German U-boats ruled the waters off the U.S. East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico. Just about every day, columns of black smoke and orange flames of torpedoed merchant vessels filled the skies from New England to New Orleans, and explosions rattled windows and the nerves of startled coastal residents and beaches were littered with oil, debris, and bodies. Overall, 397 ships were sunk in U.S. waters in just half a year. More than 5,000 people, including many civilians, burned to death, were crushed, drowned, or vanished into the sea. Mostly kept secret from the public, this was a crisis that embarrassed Washington, it panicked Great Britain, and it nearly changed the course of history. Within six months, the Allied war effort was in jeopardy, and the waters off the U.S. East Coast were considered the most dangerous place for merchant shipping in the world. And the greatest concentration of these attacks occurred in the waters between Cape Henry and Cape Lookout, with the epicenter, if you will, at Cape Hatteras, a place long notorious as the graveyard of the Atlantic. Off the North Carolina coast, 1,716 people perished, including some women and children. Many more victims of U-boat attacks, wounded, sunburned, and covered in oil, floated for days and weeks in lifeboats, life rafts, and on wreckage, in frigid seas, suffering excruciating hunger, fending off sharks, deliriously resisting the urge to drink seawater, while patrol planes sometimes flew overhead and ships passed right by without stopping to rescue them. A merchant sailor once told me, he said, we had strict orders, do not stop to try to pick up any survivors because those U-boats are probably just out there waiting for you to stop. There was an account of a lifeboat that was launched from a torpedoed and sinking ship crowded with a dozen or more men that was found weeks later with only a lone survivor aboard. One lifeboat was found off Delaware with a three-year-old girl clinging to her dead mother. No image from this period, though, is more haunting than this photograph of seven castaways on a wooden raft. This photo was taken by a Nazi propaganda photographer aboard U-123, which had just torpedoed and sunk the American tanker Muskogee about 975 miles northeast of Cape Hatteras. These merchant sailors appear forlorn and helpless as they huddle precariously on their little wooden raft. One man appears to be waving. Another is cupping his hands to his mouth as he shouts to the U-boat, perhaps uh, asking to be taken aboard. And in the center of this photo is a sailor you can see who has the grim look of a man who seems to know his fate, a vacant stare of resignation, while the sailor to his right stares at the German camera with an unmistakable hatred. None of those seven sailors were ever seen again. Tragically, this entire disaster that, had, that became known as the American Turkey Shoot could have been averted had we been prepared and had our naval authorities heeded the initial warnings of the British. A U-boat skipper during World War I, Germany's commander-in-chief of its U-boat fleet, Admiral Karl Dönitz, conceived a plan to unleash a bigger surprise for the Americans than the Japanese did on December 7, 1941, inflicting a cost in resources and lives that would have a much more devastating impact than Pearl Harbor, a secret mission that he had named Hawkinslog, which translates roughly in, into English as Operation Drumbeat. A few days before Christmas, Admiral Dernitz dispatched these five U-boats and ordered them to the middle of the, of the Atlantic to await further orders. And those orders were transmitted by Morse code, encrypted in digits and dozens of groups of letters using what was called the Enigma cipher. And when this gibberish was decoded, it authorized the five U-boats to commence attacks on shipping in U.S. and Canadian waters on January 13th. Unbeknown to the Germans at various times during the war, however, British cryptanalysts had been able to receive and decipher the German secret Enigma code that revealed the locations and general destinations of the U-boats. In fact, on the day before these Pawkinslog attacks were to commence, Admiral Ernest King, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Navy, was warned by British authorities with this telegram that German U-boats were headed to our coastal waters. Regrettably, this intelligence was ignored by U.S. naval authorities. Even though Germany's U-boats could have been discouraged by a welcoming committee of Navy destroyers, Admiral King dismissed this threat and kept all 21 of his available warships in port, including at Norfolk. U.S. naval officers had a long-standing rivalry with the Royal Navy, and they didn't like being told how to conduct their business. And based on uh, their experience defending against U-boats for the previous two years, the British strongly advised 
the Americans to establish coastal convoys, to which Admiral King seemed to be even more strongly opposed. In fact, one of Admiral King's staff officers brashly told his British counterpart, the U.S. wishes to learn its own lessons and has plenty of ships with which to do so. <laughs> Unfortunately, the U.S. officer must have forgotten how many innocent lives would be at risk aboard those plenty of ships. Now, Paulkinslog's lead U-boat was U-123, commanded by the very daring Reinhard Hartigan. When U-123 rose to the surface a few miles south of Long Island near the entrance to the Ambrose Channel, Reinhard Hartigan was amazed that the east coast of the United States was still operating as if there was no war going on at all. He wrote in his war diary that he could see the glow of New York City in the distance, and if they got into any shallower water, he would be unable to dive the U-boat to avoid detection. In fact, off the coast of New Jersey, the very next day, they nearly ran aground in 28 feet of water. Hardigan knew that off the outer banks of North Carolina, the seaward bulge of the coastline with its capes and shoals caused a narrowing of the sea lanes, resulting in a crowded passage for merchant ships. On the night of January 19, 1942, which Hardigan gleefully called, in his personal, uh, called his personal night of long knives, U-123 attacked these three ships, including the city of Atlanta, just seven miles or so east of Hatteras Island, sinking two of them. And by early February, Admiral Dernitz noted in his war diary that Pockenslog surpassed his own expectations. Left behind in the wakes of his U-boats were the broken and sunken hulks of 25 Allied ships, thousands of gallons of spilled oil, and tons of valuable cargo destroyed. 500 seamen and civilians were killed, the majority off the North Carolina coast. This disaster represented the largest concentrated loss of merchant, mariner li merchant mariners' lives in that service's history, but it was going to get much, much worse. Sailors I interviewed told me they thought it was inevitable that their ships would be torpedoed, and for one reason. Lights cast from cities and communities along the coast from Boston to Miami made darkened ships a perfect target against the horizon's gleam. Now, the Navy decided, they looked into this and decided that blackout restrictions were unnecessary because they didn't believe that German U-boats would operate in water shallower than 10 fathoms or 60 feet deep. But as you've just heard, U-123 ventured into 28 feet of water off the New Jersey coast. And owners of some coastal establishments were aware of the effects that the bright lights had on offshore shipping, but even after these restrictions were proposed, they selfishly refused to darken their businesses in favor of sustaining their income. The historian Samuel Elliott Morrison called the ambivalence of some Americans inexcusable. Now, most guilty parties uh, were on the New Jersey and Florida coast, but I discovered at least one instance when a popular North Carolina dance hall was accused of contributing to the loss of a tanker on Easter weekend. It happened on Saturday night, April 4th, 1942, at the very popular Nags Head Casino. I'm going to guess that some of you might have uh, been there and visited it. The season's first big dance was underway while Allied merchant ships nervously crept past the beach. And at approximately 10.40 p.m., a bright flash of light appeared to the north, followed by an all-too-familiar earth-shaking rumble. The music stopped, and the lights at the Nags Head Casino were quickly shut off. Seven miles east of Currituck Beach, the SS Byron D. Benson was torpedoed a tanker transporting 100,000 barrels of crude oil, all of which was burned or spilled into the ocean. Ten crew members of the ship, including the captain, suffered agonizing deaths. deaths. A Baptist minister who lived just a few hundred yards away from the Nagshead Casino reported in a letter to the governor of North Carolina that at the moment of attack, a, a number of bright lights were showing on the ocean, and as soon as the, uh, the, they heard the explosion, the lights at the Nagshead Casino were suddenly shut off. The fact is, it was not until April 18, three months after the arrival of the first U-boats and the loss of thousands of lives that the Office of Civil Defense ordered a dimming of lights on the East Coast. Unlike the stern warning on this Oakland, California poster, contrary to popular conception, never during the war was there a total blackout enforced on the East Coast, as there had been in Britain and Germany. It was just considered too inconvenient for Americans at the time. Initial restrictions extinguished lights in coastal towns, however, and limited drivers to only use their parking lights initially to navigate in the dark. The result, a significant increase in car crashes. <laughs> For example, in New Jersey, the traffic light ban was estimated to have produced a 100% increase in head-on collisions at night. We were actually doing the Germans' work for them. 
so as it happened, while these Allied ships were illuminated by brightly lit coastal towns, Americans were kept in the dark by propaganda that minimized the losses and accused sailors of talking too much, with posters exclaiming that loose lips were sinking ships, not German torpedoes. A naive and ambivalent nation let, left merchant seamen to sail in constant peril. What were we going to do, a merchant sailor said to me in an interview. If we ran off, we were considered deserters just the same as if we were in the Navy. So we had to go. And President Roosevelt promised that merchant sailors would be given veteran status for their wartime service, but sadly, Roosevelt's promises died with him. It was not until 1987 when, that the Department of Defense was forced by the courts to grant benefits to the men of the U.S. Merchant Marine. And unfortunately, by then, many wartime mariners and their spouses were no longer around to receive the government's thanks. American History Magazine has called the post-war treatment of mariners by Washington bureaucrats reprehensible. 6,185 sailors died during the war. That's a 1 in 67 casualty rate, almost twice that of uh, the United States Navy. Also in 1942, hundreds of lifeboats, uh, empty, were found washed up on East Coast beaches, including many in North Carolina, some that were riddled with bullet holes, which caused widespread rumors that German U-boat crews were shooting survivors. Overall, however, there are only a few such documented cases of the shooting of merchant sailors by German U-boat crews, one of which occurred on April 2, 1942, when 23 crew members of the Collier David Atwater were killed by machine gun fire. Uh, by the U-552 as civil the civilian sailors attempted to launch one of their lifeboats. This incident, which took place 10 miles east of Chincoteague Inlet, was observed from a distance by a Coast Guard patrol boat. But overall, we found uh, that there are very few such documented cases of the shooting of survivors. And it was not just lifeboats, but oil also came ashore. In my unofficial accounting of the quantity of petroleum cargoes carried aboard tankers, torpedoed and sunk between Cape Lookout and the Virginia border between January and July of 1942, I've estimated that more than 150 million gallons of oil was spilled in the ocean or carried to the seafloor in unruptured tanks. In fact, that amount of oil lost, a considerable, considerable portion which ended up on the beaches of the Outer Banks, represents 15 times the volume of oil spilled by the Exxon Valdez in the Gulf of Alaska in 1989, and it ranks among the top 10 oil spills in world history. So as it happened, outer bankers found themselves knee-deep in the war's detritus. Orman Fuller of Buxton said to me, she said, that summer we almost had to give up swimming, uh, going swimming in the ocean. It was just full of oil. She said, we'd get it all over us. Most families uh, on the outer banks had a bucket or can with kerosene in it with a brush and that they kept at the front door so when the kids came back from the beach, they'd have to scrape all the oil off their legs. Uh, she told me that oil was everywhere. And then some outer bankers thought it was only going to be a matter of time when Germans, too, would be coming ashore. During the years preceding the war, American newspapers reported numerous sensational stories of Nazi spy rings operating within the U.S. Now, most of these spy rings were apprehended by the FBI, but Hollywood movies like Confessions of a Nazi Spy starring Edward G. Robinson only compounded the public's fear. Ocracoke Island resident Blanche Styron told me, she said, people were frightened to death. And if we saw anything strange or any strange people, we would immediately think they were Germans. And for the first time in their memory, coastal residents began locking their doors at night, although some were surprised to find out that they never even had keys to their doors. <laughs> uh, there were two well-publicized instances of German saboteurs who were landed from U-boats at Amagansett, New York, and Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. I'm sure many of you know this. Uh, one of those saboteurs surrendered to the FBI. All were captured put on trial as spies, and six were executed. They were never able to complete their mission to blow up factories and public utilities. And according to FBI files, there was never a single enemy-inspired act of sabotage within the United States during the war. Now, there were many allegations and that were investigated, and most were determined to be the result of domestic vandalism, like the railroad trestle that I found um, that was burned east of Goldsboro that was described in this particular uh, newspaper clipping. Now, German espionage was another matter entirely. On the Outer Banks, there were at least two instances when strangers with accents were suspected of being German spies. Now, I describe both of these cases in great detail in my book, although any intelligence that these spies might have gathered had no bearing whatsoever on U-boat successes offshore. Now, one case of suspected spies who lodged at this boarding house at Cape Hatteras sparked a legend in a popular children's novel based on the daughter of the local postmistress and civilian coast watcher who reported these spies. The book is called Taffy of Torpedo Junction. 
uh, is, and this book is about a uh, pony-riding tomboy who exposes a small ring of German spies and saboteurs operating out of an old house in secluded in Buxton Woods. Now, this book, it's a wonderful story that's been required reading in North Carolina schools in the absence of having real history to teach. Uh, consequently, there are many adults who read Taffy of Torpedo Junction when they were children who today possess a conception of World War II history based solely on fiction. And some of these uh, should know better. For example, this Charlotte Observer executive editor who wrote that uh, German saboteurs landed at Nags Head and Kitty Hawk. Uh, well, that's not true at all. No, no saboteurs landed there. In fact, we, we could devote an entire program to World War II urban myths and legends just as I devoted an entire chapter of that subject in my book. Now, some of these are quite entertaining, and like well, one of my favorites is the story of a busload of naked U-boat POWs captured near Moorhead City who were taken to the J.C. Penney's in Newburn to buy pajamas. <laughs> um, or the Germans who landed on Harker's Island to buy groceries at the general store. All they had were gold bars stamped with swastikas, and they didn't ask for change. Uh, or U-boat crews who attended movies uh, uh, or dined in restaurants uh, on U.S. soil. Uh, these and many other myths I describe in my book, and they, they all make great party conversation, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that none of those things ever happened. Neither did a German, German midget submarine land at Carolina Beach or Ocean Isle, nor did a German U-boat fire artillery shells at the Dow Chemical Plant at Curry Beach. These are stories that have been perpetuated by a Wilmington writer who unfortunately a few years ago was named North Carolina Historian of the Year. Um, honestly, I, I think we're all guilty of this, though. We've all repeated our favorite stories so many times that we can't imagine that they're not true. Now, by the spring of 1942, the Germans were calling their U-boat operations in the Western Atlantic the American Turkey Shoot. And about that same time, the U.S. finally publicly admitted that the Eastern Sea Frontier was the most dangerous place for merchant shipping in the world. Also, at this very same time, an Army general in charge of Department of War plans in Washington, D.C., wrote these words in his diary. One thing that might help us win this war is to get someone to shoot Admiral King. <laughs> now, that hostile remark, you might be surprised to learn, was made by none other than Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> well, the Navy was desperate for something good to happen, and sure enough, it did. On the 29th of March, 1942, about 40 miles east of Cape Hatteras, the 452-foot-long passenger freighter City of New York was targeted through the precision optics of a German periscope. It was Palm Sunday, and aboard the ship were 47 passengers, 88 crew members, and nine sailors of the U.S. Navy Armed Guard. At noontime, non-denominational services concluded on the deck of the ship, and people began gathering for the midday meal. And at about 12.45 p.m., a torpedo ripped into the number three hole directly below the bridge, tearing a gaping hole below the waterline. The ship sank in just 15 minutes. Because the city of New York's captain had required emergency lifeboat drills over the course of their voyage, the passengers and crew evacuated the vessel quickly and orderly. And among the civilian passengers who made it into a lifeboat was this woman, Vysanka Mohorovic, a 28-year-old Yugoslavian traveling with her two-year-old daughter. Mrs. Mohorovic's husband was an official in the Yugoslavian government in exile in New York City, and he was already there awaiting her arrival. And something else you ought to know about Mrs. Mohorovic, she was eight and a half months pregnant, and for weeks she had been praying to be reunited with her husband in New York and have her baby in America. Imagine being in a crowded lifeboat in the middle of the graveyard of the Atlantic. That night the temperature dropped, the wind strengthened, and the crest of the waves began breaking as spray whipped through the air. The air temperature was about 51 degrees, but the 25-knot wind and wet clothing made it feel even colder. Sharks circled the lifeboats, and some had to be repelled by being struck by oars. By 8 p.m., the waves had grown to 10 to 15 feet high, and as you might have guessed, Mrs. Mohorovic began to go into labor. With only a basic first aid kit, the ship's doctor did his best under unbelievably difficult conditions. The procedure was, could not have been any easier if it had been conducted on a roller coaster on a rainy, dark night. All he could hope for was to be ready to catch the baby at the moment of delivery, which happened at about 2.30 a.m. on Monday morning. Adding to their problems, they were in the middle of the Gulf Stream and were being rapidly swept out to sea. 
Over the next 40 hours, this lifeboat traveled more than 90 miles from the point at which the city of New York sank. Meanwhile, this World War I-era destroyer out of Norfolk, USS Jesse Roper, was desperately seeking for what seemed to be like phantom U-boats off of Cape Hatteras. A crewman aboard the ship told me that morale aboard the ship at this time was poor, very poor. For weeks they had been on patrol and had found nothing but oil slicks, debris, and empty lifeboats. And then late one night, lookouts aboard spotted a distant light faintly flashing an SOS signal. And minutes later, they found a crowded lifeboat with 21 freezing waterlogged survivors from the city of New York, along with a newborn baby. A cargo net was draped over the side of the roper, and the survivors were hastily brought aboard, including the mother and the baby. Mrs. Mohorovic was so grateful that her young family had been rescued that on the spot, she named her son after the ship, Jesse Roper, and morale aboard the ship improved immediately. In all, the Roper rescued 70 of the city of New York survivors, and they were soon taken to the naval base at Norfolk, where a large crowd gathered awaiting them, including Red Cross volunteers. And here is the first official photograph of baby Jesse cradled in the arms of a rather astonished-looking nurse. Now, the story of the birth of the baby in the lifeboat and his rescue by an American destroyer was a public relations bonanza for the Navy. He was, in some papers, he was called the baby Hitler couldn't get. And the story made all the major papers. And within 24 hours, Joseph Mohorovic was reunited with his young family. Now, I had hoped to make contact with the family to hear their story firsthand. But sadly, uh, Dasanka Mohorovic had passed away in the early 1990s. But I was able to find someone who knew her fairly well and who was willing to tell me what she was like. So let's hear the story from him. Well, she was a woman of very strong faith, very, very strong faith, and, uh, and a courageous woman, obviously, and a woman who had great trust that her daughter, her, her son, her newborn son, would somehow come out. She really put her trust in God, maybe not so commonly heard today, but that was her view. Well, uh, Mrs. Mohorovic was my mother, and uh, she passed on in 1993, and uh, I loved her like every second. Uh, some of you may know this. Uh, Jesse lived here in Richmond for a number of years, and I actually did this interview in downtown Rich Richmond back in uh, 2000, but sadly, Jesse himself passed away in 2005. It took a few months, but gradually the Navy rose to the occasion and coastal defenses were implemented to combat the Nazi menace. Boys from America's heartland were recruited by the Coast Guard to beef up the shorthanded lifeboat stations along the coast. They bravely took up the fight with small arms, in small boats, and on small horses. I interviewed two men who were transferred to the Coast Guard station at Ocracoke, and I asked them what they thought of their assignment, and they told me they considered Ocracoke to be the last stop in civilization. <laughs> now, while many, while many of their high school buddies were being sent to all these exotic destinations in the South Pacific, North Africa, or England, the two men that I interviewed, Ted Mutro and Mac Womack, figured that all they were going to be fighting during the war were mosquitoes and boredom. But within days, they found out otherwise. I interviewed Mr. Womack 12 years ago. Uh, just two months before he passed away. Now, we, he began by joking a little bit about life on Ocracoke, but all of a sudden, his good-natured countenance darkened as he began to remember another less humorous memory. The night he remembered was Friday, the 23rd of January, only his, only his third week on the island, the night the British tanker Empire Gem was torpedoed about 25 miles east of Ocracoke Inlet. It took Mr. Womack's little lifeboat from Silver Lake more than six hours to reach the burning ship, even though they could see it the entire time. The four Coast Guardsmen aboard knew that by the time they would arrive, it would almost be too late to find any survivors. Let's let Mr. Womack tell the story. Well, you could see the, the orange glow in the sky a long time before we got to it. Then all we could do was just go around and around. Notice that they're going into the flowers of the city. Did it make you angry as a, a 
drums because they were here doing that thing? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If I could have got close enough to you one time, I might have killed you. Because those guys didn't have a time and a chance. <laughs> had me sitting ducks, what they were. Only, only two of the 57 British sailors aboard the Empire Gem were rescued. Uh, one can only imagine how such an experience impacted the morale of those young Coast Guard lifesavers. Everybody was really down in the dumps and gloomy uh, on, the, on, on the Outer Banks. Now, later that year, in a letter to his superiors, the commander of the Ocracoke Station attributed the poor morale to, um, to the isolated position of the base, the poverty of entertainment, no liquor, and a lack of supply of ladies of negotiable affection sought by sailors. <laughs> now, now, it is true that there was no liquor on the island. It wasn't allowed, at least the legal kind. But there, there were young Ocracoke women who enjoyed dancing at the Spanish casino on the outskirts of the village. And their affections might not have been the negotiable kind sought by sailors, but these girls were available just the same. And I've discovered many enduring romances blossomed, some that I documented in my book in the chapter titled The Unconditional Surrender. Uh, in fact, Mr. Mutro and Mr. Womack there in the, in the two center pictures uh, who considered Ocracoke to be the last stop in civilization, both married island girls and they lived out their days on Ocracoke Island. So it didn't turn out to be so bad. Well, our initial defenses were modest, to say the least. A military planner came up with a brilliant alternative to sailors patrolling the beach on foot, uh, mounted horseback patrols. But instead of uh, using native outer banker ponies, the military insisted that horses from the U.S. Army be used. And I was told by a number of men assigned to one of these units that many of these thoroughbred horses, upon seeing waves crash on the beach, threw their riders and bolted back to the stables. And to me, when I look at these official Coast Guard photographs taken of sailors on horseback, uh, they evoke humorous thoughts of Wild West cowboys waiting to corral German saboteurs landing on the beach. Not to mention whoever thought of using German shepherds to sniff out German spies. <laughs> Another defensive measure that surprisingly proved to be effective was the use of private yachts for anti-submarine patrols, which became known officially as the U.S. Coast Guard Corsair Fleet but known unofficially by the personnel assigned to it as the Hooligan Navy. Now, crews were made up of college boys, bo Boy Scouts, beachcombers, ex-bootleggers, and rum runners. And anyone who showed up and declared that they could tie a knot and steer a boat, and many who couldn't, were accepted for this duty. Some of the vessel's names were no less dubious. Uh, one motor yacht I discovered uh, for this service was named Poodle Pub. And when the Corsair fleet needed an emblem, Walt Disney Studios offered the mercurial Donald Duck dressed as a swashbuckling pirate replete with eye patch, cutlass, brace of pistols, and a knife clenched in his bill. Something like a feathered, web-footed blackbeard. I wonder how many hooligan sailors laughed at the likelihood that German U-boats were going to be frightened by subchasers named Poodle Pub with crews emblazoned with this fearsome pirate duck. Now, this photo was taken from the watchtower at Ocracoke Coast Guard Station, and it shows a schooner, a sloop, and a catch of the Corsair fleet. One of the men assigned to one of these vessels, uh, the schooner, told me that the Navy showed up one day and loaded three depth charges on the stern of his schooner, and then they told the crew to head out and hunt for German U-boats. Oh, and one more thing the Navy said, if you find a U-boat and decide to drop one of these depth charges on it, make sure you're doing at least 15 knots. Well, the guy told me, he said, thank God they never found a U-boat uh, because we probably would have blown ourselves up. The top speed on the schooner was about six knots. <laughs> well, throughout North Carolina's port towns and tiny beach communities, construction of bases and airfields, ports, and piers commenced at a breakneck pace. At Ocracoke, a top-secret Navy facility that the islanders called the Loop Shack Hill was built to use brand-new technology to track enemy submarines offshore. And I describe how this worked or how it was supposed to work and also why it didn't work in my book. Now today, the mysterious foundations of radar towers and casemate command structures, structures are hidden among the cedars and wax myrtles uh, near the entrance to the village. By mid-May 1942, Admiral King finally reversed course and he approved the organization of well-defended coastal convoys. During the remainder of that year, 165 convoys comprised of thousands of vessels made the voyage past the east coast of the U.S with the loss to U-boats of only three ships in, in the next six months. 
Admiral Dönitz then redeployed his U-boats to the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic, and the Battle of Torpedo Junction was abruptly ended. But for the thousands of already dead, missing, and critically injured, unfortunately, it was too late. I also want to uh, make mention of the extraordinary courage of Civil Air Patrol pilots. 59 pilots, including some women, lost their lives, 26 during coastal patrols uh, in, in search of U-boats. 90 aircraft were lost at sea, uh, usually when the aircraft ran out of fuel because the pilots didn't want to give up the hunt. Um, perhaps, though, least appreciated is the fact that uh, Civil Air Patrol coastal planes summoned help for uh, nearly 300 uh, uh, lifeboats or survivors in the water during this time. Now, there are a few groundbreaking discoveries that I was able to publish for the first time in my book, including the truth about the claim of Navy aviator Donald Francis Mason, who purportedly was the first American to sink a German U-boat in 1942. Mason became a celebrated hero who charmed Hollywood actresses, including Betty Grable here in this photograph. Unfortunately for Ensign Mason, or his memory, my research proves that the U-boat he thought he sank was not, in fact, destroyed. In fact, in, in my book, you'll read a nail-biting eyewitness account of the sinking of the U-85 off Nags Head by the USS Jesse Roper just two weeks after the rescue of the baby. A Roper crew member told me that after the rescue of the baby, of course, the morale aboard the ship w uh, improved and the men had a refortified resolve. Now, the chase uh, and the surface gun battle between these vessels lasted about an hour, and when it came time for the destroyer Roper's batteries to fire every single gun aboard that ship jammed. And in one of the slimmest turns of fate, it's amazing, seconds before the Roper was nearly sunk by the U-boat, the destroyer's guns finally started firing, and instead, the U-85 was sunk. And as that U-boat was going down, dozens of Germans escaped, and they were swimming in the ocean. But unfortunately, the Roper's officers mistakenly believed that there was a second U-boat nearby, and they ordered depth charges to be launched, which killed all of those Germans in the water. In a chapter titled, But Time and Chance Happens to Them All, you'll learn that 28 German bodies were recovered after that engagement, and two of the men actually had personal diaries in their pockets of their clothing. This picture, by the way, is of the Hampton National Cemetery, where those Germans are buried. Uh, as I said, uh, they had uh, two men had diaries in their pockets, and I have personally examined those diaries at the National Archives, and those diaries both describe the day off of Newfoundland, January 28th, when they were bombed but not sunk by a U.S. Navy plane, none other than Donald Francis Mason's plane. And there are two other, two other additional counts in, of U-boat engagements in North Carolina waters that are not lacking in high drama, including the sinking of the U-701 by an Army bomber off of Cape Hatteras in July. In this case, seven Germans floated on the ocean's surface and drifted for 49 hours before being rescued. And in one of the more remarkable revelations that I uncovered while doing research came from recently declassified documents that reveal that Navy intelligence officers at Norfolk attempted to hypnotize and drug two of these German POWs from the U-701 in what turned out to be an unauthorized interrogation that violated the Third Geneva Convention. But if you want to know the surprising reasons why, and I know this is shameless, you're going to have to find the answer <laughs> in my book. As you can see by this chart, which includes Canadian waters as well as the uh, U.S., sinkings of merchant vessels dropped dramatically seven months after the first U-boats arrived on this side of the Atlantic. And on May 7, 1945, radios across America and along the mid-Atlantic coast brought the news so eagerly awaited for so long the report of Germany's surrender to Allied forces. The broadcasting company delays the start of all its programs to bring you a special bulletin. It was announced in San Francisco half an hour ago by a high American official not identified as saying that Germany has surrendered unconditionally to the Allies. No strings attached. At the war's end, Admiral Dönitz, uh, after he was arrested, stated that he hardly felt defeated. The result of his U-boat operations in U.S. waters, again, accounted to, um, amounted to 397 ships sunk more than 5,000 people killed, twice the number of those who died at the hands of the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. And as I've said, more than 1,700 people perished in North Carolina waters, including some women and children. Historians have described this as the greatest single defeat ever suffered by American naval power. Tragically, the entire disaster might have been averted had we been, pre had we been prepared, and Admiral King heard the initial, heeded the initial warnings of the British. I also like to remind audiences that nature, or Mother Nature, if you will, has, has been and always will be potentially more destructive than man. 
as it happened to Hurricane on the 14th of September 1944, proved to be many times more destructive than, uh, to property at least than German U-boats or enemy saboteurs, although not nearly as deadly. Nevertheless, for many of the residents of coastal Carolina, and I'm sure the East Coast, the 44 hurricane made the turmoil and devastation of 1942 seem like an inconsequential and distant memory. I will conclude now with a story about the British cemetery on Ocracoke Island, hallowed ground known to many as a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. On Friday, the 13th of May in 2005, just a few years ago, a large crowd of men, women, and children gathered for a historic event. A breeze that day buffeted the gnarled limbs of a sprawling live oak tree as a bagpiper played in the distance. Nearby, a U.S. Coast Guard rifle party stood ready to fire a three-volley salute. Almost everyone's eyes were directed toward the white picket fence that surrounded the graves of four British sailors buried there 63 years earlier. Then anticipation gripped the audience as the guest of honor stepped forward. And at the podium, a 62-year-old retired commander in the Royal Navy Reserve read the names and ages of the dead, his words expressed in a careful cadence, his voice wavering with emotion. As his blue-gray eyes averted downward and became teary with grief, he read the words of the poet Lawrence Binion from his poem, For the Fallen. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them. And remember them they still do, the intrepid sailors of the Royal Navy patrol vessel torpedoed and sunk by a U-boat 17 miles south of Cape Lookout on the 11th of May, 1942. All 37 men aboard that patrol vessel perished in a cataclysmic explosion. But the story really begins about six weeks earlier when Acock Brown, a civilian forensic investigator for U.S. Navy intelligence, had been sent to examine a corpse that had been recovered near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Brown later wrote, that the man most likely would be one of three things, a member of the British or American military, a British or American seaman, or an enemy agent. I had to know which, and the subject himself couldn't tell me in his present condition. Now, Acock Brown identified the deceased through fingerprints as Michael Cairns, an officer from the torpedoed British tanker San Delfino, which had been torpedoed east of Oregon Inlet. Having been proven that the dead man was not an enemy agent, Brown then wanted the British sailor buried with traditional military honors. However, without a British honor guard, uh, a rifle team, a bugler, the best that Brown could hope for was to find a British flag that could drape that sailor's casket. Brown's search for the flag led him to the docks at Moorhead City Shipyard where the Royal Navy warship HMT Bedfordshire was berthed. He was directed to see the officer of the deck, the affable 28-year-old Thomas Cunningham, a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. Uh, Brown greeted the bearded Cunningham and informed the young officer of what he needed. And while those Union Jacks were being gathered, the hospitable Cunningham invited Brown to participate in an age-old Royal Navy tradition, the partaking of a daily ration of grog. Brown was known to never turn down such an offer. The happy Cunningham told Brown that he had recently received a telegram from his wife back in England, Barbara, informing him that the couple was expecting their first child in about seven months. The two sociable men sipped their rum and became instant friends. Of course, the grog may have had something to do with the convivial spirit in the wardroom that day because by the time their meeting had ended, the wicker-wrapped rum jug was empty. Brown kept it as a souvenir and was photographed holding it many years later. Well, as these two men said their farewells, Cunningham handed Brown a stack of four Union Jacks that included two more than Brown had asked for. We can only speculate that Cunningham perhaps thought that there might have been a possibility that more British sailors might wash up on North Carolina's beaches in the coming months. And sure enough, six months later, while he was patrolling the beach at Ocracoke Island, two corpses were found and recovered by a chief petty officer named Arnold Tolson. Those bodies were taken back to the village where they were wrapped in a tarpaulin and placed in a small building at the old life-saving station, and a call was made to Naval Investigator Acock Brown. Brown arrived from Cherry Point carrying his fingerprint kit and he was led to, the little to that little building. And in his retelling of the story, the ever buoyant Brown, but now crestfallen Brown, described that moment when the tarp was removed from the bodies. He nearly collapsed. Brown told the station commander without any further examination, he knew from where the dead men had come, HMT Bedfordshire. 
I know this man, Brown said. He's Sub-Lieutenant Tom Cunningham. I just met him a few weeks ago. And later, fingerprints were taken from the second body that confirmed his identity as the British trawler's ordinary telegraphist, Stanley Craig. The bodies were wrapped in blankets, sealed within wooden boxes that had once been used as floating duck blinds and then taken to the burial site. As the men delicately lowered Thomas Cunningham into the sandy ground, Acock Brown stood nearby to take this photograph of the burial, fighting back tears and a consuming hatred of the Germans who had killed his newfound friend. He shook his head in disbelief at the irony. One of those two spare flags that Cunningham had given him now covered the Englishman's own casket. And somewhere back in England, Brown thought, there was a young widow expecting a child she would have to raise without a father. Now, when Barbara Cunningham had been notified of her husband's death, she wrote a letter inquiring if her husband, who was a Roman Catholic, had been afforded the church's rites of burial. Well, since that wasn't possible in May 1942, a promise was made to conduct a memorial service later that year with a Catholic chaplain presiding. And so on December 27th, Navy sailors and Coast Guardsmen reconvened at that patch of sandy soil north of Silver Lake that marked the final resting place of Cunningham and Craig. And by then, there were two additional burials there. Neither of those bodies were, uh, could be identified, but they were presumed also to have come from the Bedfordshire. And under an overcast sky, a rifle party of, of, of about 17 sailors fired a three-volley salute, followed by a bugler who played taps. Acock Brown was again present, and he took these photographs. And when that memorial was concluded, that little cemetery and the memory of those men buried there gradually faded from everyone's attention. There were more important things going on, of course. The supreme sacrifice made by the men of the Bedfordshire was in danger of being forgotten. Ochre Cokers never forgot, however. A close bond between the village and the Cunningham family back in England was sustained. And then over the years, eventually a white picket fence was built around the graves and the cemetery was kept free of weeds and vines by the island residents. And then since 1976, when the cemetery was leased in perpetuity to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, an annual memorial event has been conducted at that site on the Friday nearest to the anniversary of May 11th. A few months after her husband's death, Barbara Cunningham gave birth to a son, Thomas Cunningham, Jr. Mrs. Cunningham never remarried. She always remained true to her husband and the loving father of the son he would never know. But over the years, however, the family had been unable to travel that great distance to the remote island of Ocracoke in that little cemetery where Thomas Cunningham was buried. Not until the 13th of May, 2005. That is when Thomas Cunningham, Jr., a retired commander in the Royal Navy was the special guest and speaker at that memorial event. It was then that Thomas Cunningham's son stood teary-eyed before his father's grave, his words expressed in a careful cadence, his voice wavering with emotion, saying, they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Well, as this story of the ill-fated Bedfordshire is retold each year at Ocracoke, more and more people hear that the men of that little warship had no warning of the approaching torpedo, the, the explosion was so abrupt and so violent that no distress signal was ever sent. The Bedfordshire's men were killed instantly. And it would seem that during her brief couple of months of helping to defend our nation's shore against the evil of German U-boats, that brave little warship was never able to accomplish her mission. In fact, there are some who, while listening to the story of the Bedfordshire, might wonder if Lieutenant Thomas Cunningham and his comrades had perished in vain. However, it is my belief that their supreme mission not issued to them verbally by their allied commanders, but silently by God, was not to sink German U-boats, but to die in order to remind us and future generations of the incomparable selfless sacrifices made by the millions of brave men and women who fought and died during World War II in defense of our freedom. In the fulfillment of that mission and purpose, Cunningham and the Bedfordshire's men were victorious. They have prevailed, and they live forever in our memory. But what about the other 5,000 people who perished at sea off the American coast in 1942, the majority of whom were lost off the North Carolina coast? What about the even greater number of family members and relatives of the vast many of husbands, fathers, sons, brothers, uncles lost at sea who've been tragically deprived of having a grave to visit or a memorial service to attend? Inspired by these words of a merchant marine memorial at Marcus Hook, uh, Pennsylvania, I've been trying to generate interest to establish a national monument on the Outer Banks dedicated to those thousands of lives lost off the American coast during World War II. 
And I hope to see it happen by 2017, which will be the 75th anniversary of that horrific but little-known chapter of our nation's history. In the meantime, let us now take a moment to remember those who defend our freedom, our courageous veterans, the young families of our armed forces, our allies around the world, and especially those forgotten souls of merchant sailors who perished at sea. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Um, it was my understanding it was Churchill complaining bitterly to President Roosevelt that sort of um, got Admiral King um, interested in this. Can you comment on that? Um, well, yeah, that, uh, that is absolutely true, but Churchill wasn't the only one. Uh, all of the um, presidents of all the oil companies were complaining because all of their oil uh, was, was being lost at sea, which, of course, was vital to uh, winning the war. Um, uh, there were many people, uh, even uh, um, President Roosevelt uh, said that, um, said to uh, Winston Churchill, he said that uh, your Navy has learned the lessons uh, of fighting the Germans, but mine has yet to do so. Uh, so there was a, quite a bit of pressure. And, uh, you know, to Admiral King's defense a little bit, he was, uh, he had a lot going on trying to, uh, of course, fight the war in the, in the Pacific and also uh, get con um, uh, supplies to uh, England and to North Africa. Um, but the British said that we needed, we needed well-defended convoys going, travel, going from Key West to, to Halifax, Nova Scotia, because uh, that's where we were losing most of our ships. And, and King didn't think he had the resources. But there, were, um, there was a private sword fishing fleet uh, out of Rhode Island that volunteered their services to at least go out and be spotters. And uh, a lot of people were offering to help. In fact, Admiral King uh, initially um, uh, refused the help of the Civil Air Patrol, and the Civil Air Patrol turned out to be uh, one of the most uh, important, um, uh, you know, facets to defeating the U-boats. As, as to the German Navy, how long would a U-boat be on patrol, and how were they resupplied? Uh, initially, of course, the, the very first, the Pockenslag um, operation was something of an experiment. Now, U-boats had come to the east coast of the United States during World War I. Uh, they had laid mines off of the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay and off of uh, the coast of North Carolina. So it shouldn't have come as a surprise, of course, that U-boats showed up. But they generally had about six weeks' worth of fuel. Uh, the uh, German, the, the uh, chief engineers on board the boats, U-boats, took a great pride in knowing exactly uh, how much fuel and how many nautical miles they could travel. Uh, and, uh, and one U-boat actually ran out of fuel within a mile of returning to uh, its uh, dock in uh, Lorient, France. Um, so, uh, but then eventually the Germans began to build um, U-boats called milk cows uh, that were designed simply to carry supplies. And they would rendezvous with the operational boats uh, east of uh, Bermuda, the Bermuda Islands. And, uh, and so U-boats on their way to the, to the uh, east coast of the United States would either top off their fuel tanks there or uh, refill on their way back to France uh, and also take on additional supplies. The U-boats uh, were able to um, get as far as the mouth to the Mississippi River um, and uh, recorded some successful engagements there in sinking uh, our tankers. And also they operated in the Caribbean as well. Yes. Yes, uh, I understand that Bayonne, New Jersey, and uh, New York was where most of the uh, 
supplies and our men going to England uh, on sh troop ships and so forth were out of New York and New Jersey. And how does that compare with what you're talking about with the activity out of Norfolk and North Carolina as far as the U-boat the U-boat warfare? Well, I think you're referring to uh, troop ships uh, certainly leaving, most of them did leave uh, New York Harbor. It was easier to, to use railways to, to get our uh, troops uh, to that area. Most of the activity off of the uh, North Carolina coast and Virginia Capes uh, involved uh, oil tankers, gasoline tankers, and, uh, and cargo ships. Um, some of these cargo ships were not even carrying uh, materials uh, for war. The city of Atlanta basically just had paper aboard that was on you know, its way to Savannah. Um, so completely different. Um, I don't know of any uh, troop ships that were sunk uh, or attacked in U.S. waters. Again, it was mostly uh, what, uh, what Dernitz was attempting to do was to sever the arteries of war, the supply lines, uh, you know, all of the commodities. This, is, this was an age-old military strategy known as uh, guard a course, uh, def uh, defeating a nation by uh, cutting off uh, its supplies. I hope that answered it sufficiently. Yes. Um, one of your pictures had a dirigible or a blimp in it, and I used to travel down uh, the North Carolina coast some, and uh, I was under the understanding that I, I saw some uh, hangars down below Elizabeth City that were so large uh, that they dated back to the days of World War II where they housed uh, the dirigibles or blimps. And I wondered, you, you didn't comment on the dirigible or blimp surveillance up and down the East Coast? Well, my, my wonderful host only gave me an hour to, to speak, so. <laughs> um, but you're, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the uh, U.S. Navy had, they, they built uh, airships, dirigibles, uh, at the base uh, that's still there, uh, just just on the uh, Pasquotank River south of Elizabeth City. And you know, again, for the sake of time, I really wasn't able to get into the effectiveness of those uh, airships, but uh, they proved to be uh, very important in uh, spotting U-boats. Uh, they obviously had, um, you know, they didn't make much noise. Uh, they could operate for long periods of time, move very slowly. Uh, there was rumor, one rumor, I was never able to track it down, that uh, one of these uh, airships returned to Elizabeth City with its uh, tail rudder shot up. Uh, it's a little hard to imagine because once those airships got out there, the German U-boats were having a terrible time trying to uh, operate on the surface in daytime hours. In fact, just about any time one of them got up on the surface in daylight, they were uh, spotted. Now, this is late spring, early summer of 1942. But uh, that's uh, an, an important chapter, and I actually, in my book, I, I discuss that a little bit. And, um, I mentioned the U-701, the, the survivors from that German U-boat were initially spotted by a uh, dirigible that was patrolling uh, east of Oregon Inlet. Um, after, after 70 years of this uh, not well-known story, how, how is it that your book and a book by Ed Offley on a similar subject came out probably within six months of each other? <laughs> uh, I don't know when his book came out. Mine came out in t uh, 2012. The, the, um, well, first of all, um, there, as a researcher, this is a very difficult subject to research, or has been anyway. Uh, one of my, uh, my, not one of, my mentor was David Stick, who wrote the book Graveyard of the Atlantic and the History of the Outer Banks. And in Graveyard of the Atlantic, which he wrote in 1952, uh, he had very limited amount of information to work with about uh, the losses to German U-boats. Uh, it was a very thin chapter, uh, just because there was not the, the government had not released any records or not uh, at all. Uh, also, a number of I, I initially based a lot of my research on uh, oral histories and traditions or uh, testimony of, of coastal residents, and I found some who even you know, 40, 50 years later wouldn't talk about it because they were told in 1942 by the Navy or the Coast Guard not to, not to speak <laughs> about it. And, um, but eventually I was able to extract a number of stories and then to be able to, to uh, confirm them through records. The most recent um, uh, opportunities for researchers, uh, one thing is, is that an organization has posted online 
uh, almost the complete uh, uh, daily log of Admiral Dernitz. Uh, and so you can read uh, all of his situational reports and uh, intelligence that was coming back to him. And a number of U-boats, including 123, the complete log of the two war patrols of U-123 uh, are available on the Internet. And then finally, the uh, U.S. Navy has, and also the FBI have declassified a number of documents. In fact, that's how I was able to discover this story that the German survivors from U-701, uh, they attempted to hypnotize them uh, at Norfolk. I found that in recent, fairly recently declassified FBI records. It's a kind of a funny story. I have to say that the German knew what was going on. They were attempting to hypnotize him, and so he just played along. And so when they said, you're, you know, you're asleep, he, he, and they lifted his arm up, and he just let it flop back down on his, uh, but he wasn't hypnotized at all. Um, and um, so anyway, I hope that answers the question. Over time, more and more records become available, and I'm sure there's probably still more that we can uh, learn. This may be beyond the realm of your research, but you mentioned one of the French ports that supplied or um, helped the, uh, the German U-boats in the Atlantic. Were all the U-boats uh, uh, supplied through French ports, uh, first question, and secondly, uh, were there any stories or any research that you ran across where the French did anything to try to sabotage or uh, delay or hamper or uh, help the U.S. cause with regard to those U-boats when they came into French ports? Well, I can easily say yes. This, the second question that you asked is, is outside the realm of my research, but I, I can, the, the, your first question, uh, all of the operational bases for U-boats in 1942 were on the coast of France. In fact, uh, during the two previous years, uh, Dernitz, I mean, it was obvious to them that they were not going to be able to, to use U-boats or to really operate their Navy very easily if all their bases were on the Baltic or, you know, on the coast of Germany. So during that time, they, once they captured France, and, and that was one of their principal uh, first objectives, of course, was to get these U-boat bunkers built. They built these enormous uh, bomb-proof bunkers at La, La Rochelle and Lorient, and uh, I can't remember, remember the names of the other ports, but there were about five or six French ports that um, where these U-boats sortied from. And, and return too. And eventually, you know, air cover from, from Great Britain, both the uh, uh, U.S. and Royal uh, Air Force air aircraft were able to fly across the Bay of Biscay and, and, and directly attack those U-boat pens, kind of keeping them in. But I'm sure, the, I'm sure there a lot of intelligence was uh, shared between, um, you know, French spies and uh, allied forces in, in Britain, but I, I can't speak directly to that. Thank you.